0: Turn in your Bibles to John chapter four. John chapter four. We're going to look. We're going to be looking at verses one through fourteen. <coughs> not everything in there. I would like to, but uh, I'm not the time for it. But you we'll look at uh, most of it. So. <coughs> let's um, let's go ahead and pray first, and then we'll read. Uh, Thank you, Father, for this time. We do pray that you would just be in our midst, that you'd be at work, uh, that you would uh, sustain my voice uh, this morning. I pray, Father, that uh, you would uh, just uh, fill us with your spirit. May we understand the beautiful things that are written within your word. We are thankful for it and uh, pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. John 4, 1 through 14. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were baptizing, he left Judea and he went away into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sikar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. that's that's John speaking there. That's um, so he he puts this little uh, comment in there to help you understand why she would even ask the question. Right. So the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Uh, Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And she said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. The water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up unto eternal life. Over the last few chapters, we have seen a recurring theme, the theme of water. Before this week, I don't think I saw uh, just how thoroughly this theme is woven into the first part of of the book of John, but it's everywhere. First, we saw water turned to wine in chapter two, representing the way in which the transformation will take place as God's work of new creation and messianic fulfillment takes takes the old and transforms it into the new, from the water into the wine. <clears throat> then we are told, or more specifically, Nicodemus is told that he must be born again by water and by spirit. If he is not born again, such that he becomes a renewed human, a renewed son of God, he will not see the kingdom of God. Here, water represents that cleansing of Ezekiel 36 that would come upon Israel and wash, it, wash them, cleansing them from their sins and bring them, bringing them out of exile. <coughs> Then we saw the way that these uses of water morphed into a discussion of baptism, or the baptisms of John and Jesus, respectively. Baptism, we saw, was a symbol within the scriptural world of purification. Again, a continuation of the theme of washing. And this purification was what was needed for Israel because of her idolatry (coughs) and filthiness, because of the idols that she had been worshiping. But now baptism had become the extended symbol of washing, the outward practice pointing to the fulfillment of this purification project, the return of Israel from exile. More broadly, as we saw last week, this purification was what was needed to bring Israel out of her long awaited exile, which we saw was a result of the curse she was under because of her idolatry and disobedience to the Mosaic law. We saw that John the Baptist Answer to the disciples about his baptism over against Jesus's baptism was to say, in essence, I have been given a mission to do, and I will faithfully do it as long as I was directed. It was a mission of testimony to testify that he, John, was not the Messiah and to testify that Jesus was the Messiah and that he had been appointed to this task of being the herald of the new day. And this then would be represented in his baptism. He would not be drawn into a competition, but would faithfully execute his own mission until the bridegroom arrived and made his mission obsolete. And for John the Baptist, when Jesus himself begins baptizing, it indicates that his mission is coming to an end, but in the sense of a goal, an end goal. He is rejoicing at the bridegroom's voice. And as a result of Jesus's baptizing work, John wells up with joy because he knows the kingdom is bursting onto the scene, and that Jesus' baptisms are a sign that all is running according to schedule. There, There are the stories behind the story, and we should tune our ears to hear them by immersing ourselves in the stories of Old Testament scripture. We should keep in mind at all times, especially in the Gospels, that we are dealing with the theme of New Exodus, that we discuss so often in our taking of the Lord's Supper. And the way that that original Exodus was about God becoming king, the Lord shall reign forever and ever, we read in Exodus 15 18. Unless we doubt that there's a continuation between the first Exodus and the final Exodus so often celebrated in the Gospels, we should read Isaiah 52, 7 and following. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace, And brings good news of happiness. Who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. He becomes king. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. They shout joyfully together. For they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. Break forth, shout joyfully together. You waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch nothing unclean, go out of the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. But you will not go out in haste, nor will you go out as fugitives, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Your God reigns. This is what we saw in Exodus. We also saw in Exodus that the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. This is Exodus language in Isaiah. And Isaiah intends us to understand that the new Exodus means the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has come when God brings Israel out of exile. Now, before we leave John chapter 3, We should note in our transition uh, into chapter four that the language that John uses or John the Baptist uses of Jesus, namely of the bridegroom, and then of himself as the friend of the bride or the best man, and the the language of the bride is the language of God's relationship with Israel as Israel's bridegroom, with Israel as the bride. God, we, we understand, has betrothed Israel to himself as a wife, as she has been unfaithful, especially in relation to the other nations whose idols have become, have become snares for Israel. Ezekiel 16.32 summarizes the scriptural view of God's relationship with Israel as a husband. You adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband, and who can forget Hosea, Hosea 1, verses 1 and 2. Hosea 1, 2 and 2, 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry. For the Lord commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 2. Contend with your mother. Contend. For she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. And let her put away her, ha- uh, her harlotry from her face, and her adultery from between her breasts. I'll leave the rest for you to read. It's fairly graphic. But the point over and over again is that Israel has been unfaithful to the marriage between herself and the Lord. And this relationship must be remedied, repaired, fixed in some way. God's redeeming love will see to it that it is repaired at least for those who will take heed to his voice. Thus, as we hear John's language of bridegroom, we should realize that God is, repair, is about to repair that broken marriage through the arrival of the bridegroom, Jesus, God's faithful representative. And there's about to be a new marriage in which God will betroth to himself a people forever. Hosea 2, 19 and 20. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion, and I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. I mentioned last week that the identity of the bride is left ambiguous in the first few chapters of John, even unknown. We don't know who the bride is in this passage, as John then introduces Jesus as the bridegroom. But we will begin to see who this bride is in John chapter 4, and by contrast, who she is not. We have all hints about who she will be within the book if we think about the language John uses of those who become God's own people. In verses, chapter 1, verses 11 through 13, we read that he came to his own things, his own world, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of a man or husband, but of God. It's not in marriage language here, but the metaphors often change, coming at this issue from different angles. What do we learn about who belongs to him? Uh, In other words, who will be his bride? They are the ones who receive him who believe in his name, who are born of God. They believe the witness that God has testified about himself, that Jesus himself testifies to. One believes the words of God. One embraces the son, the exalted king, the suffering yet vindicated son of man. If this description of who becomes the bride of God himself does nothing else, it reframes the covenantal relationship. This is what is going on within John. He leaves the, the definition of who the bride is vague so as to fill it in, so as to describe who it is that will be part of this new marriage of the Lamb. I just thought, just thought of Revelation. Look at Revelation 5. It's about this marriage of the Lamb, right? So, Marriage is coming to get his bride, and then eventually you see this come to fruition at the end of the book. And the um, and the New Jerusalem comes down of heaven out of heaven like a bride prepared for for his groom. So it, it's it's really there, and and uh, just so happens that John wrote it too. So <laughs> he's all on this. So when God speaks of Israel as her bride, He speaks of their relationship in the context of covenant. The covenant charter for Israel has been broken, and Israel has become unfaithful to the covenant. In other words, unfaithful to the marriage relationship. What God is doing now is reconstituting the covenant around the Messiah. Whereas Torah and Torah observance had been the means by which the bride would be judged, now Jesus is put at the center of this relationship. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who doesn't obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. One can see just how shocking this would have been for the Jews of the first century to turn from Torah being their badge of covenant membership to faith and loyalty to the Messiah as the new covenant badge. It was a step too far for most of them, a hill upon which they would not die. But it wasn't a decision from which one could escape, one which you could take it or leave it and still be okay. John is clear about this. It was a decision of life or death. It drew a line and said what John said above believe in the Messiah to gain life. Disobey, and God's wrath abides on you in anticipation of that day when God will raise the dead and judge every man. God's love is a love that must not be spurned. It is so great. Or do you you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. So says Paul in Romans chapter 2, 4 through 6. In our present text, John 4, 1 through 14, We see the reconstitution of the covenant and covenant membership, that is, who the bride is, worked out in a particular way. Those who were thought to be outside the covenant find that the door of God's love is wide wide enough to receive anyone who comes to Jesus. In this passage, Jesus perhaps perhaps is a way to cool down the tensions developing around his baptism ministry in Judea which would be what what we would call the religious and governmental uh, governmental seats of power, uh, which were not really separated within that world. Those resided in Judea, in Jerusalem, which is where where, uh, Jerusalem is in Judea, around the center of all things, around the temple. Now, Jesus leaves Judea and makes his way to Galilee. In order to get to Galilee, one route that he could take, in fact, the most direct route, would be to pass through Samaria. There is a way that um, you can go uh, into Galilee and you have to go in a roundabout way, but he passes right through Samaria, Samaria. It's a choice. And as he passes through, he stops at a well to rest, having become wearied by the journey. He stops at a well, but it's not just any well, it is a well that is on the piece of ground given to Joseph by Jacob. As we've seen in all the gospels, very few details are inconsequential. There's several things to note about the setting. First, it is Jacob's well. To us, this seems fairly unimportant, but in the scriptures, Jacob is Israel. And even to the Samaritans, he is, according to this text, our father, Jacob. So John the Evangelist is drawing a contrast here between Jacob, that is Israel, and Jesus. Remember back at the end of chapter one that Jacob was alluded to when Jesus says to Nathanael, "'Behold an Israelite in whom there is no deceit.'" Jacob, who had deceived his father for the blessing, is there being contrasted with the newly reconstituted Israel, those who recognize their king, their Messiah, as Messiah. Like Jacob at Bethel, which is house of God, Jesus himself as the house of God will be ministered to by the angels of God as he goes about his mission of embodying faithful Israel. Like Jacob with whom God went as he journeyed to Laban and spent 14 plus years working for his wives. So with Jesus, God's presence is fully with his son. He is the very embodiment of the glory of God. Here in this current passage, chapter four, John is comparing Jacob to Jesus for this reason, to draw a connection between Jacob and Jesus as the heads of a new Israel, or heads of the old Israel and of the new Israel. That is, as Jacob was named Israel and himself represented Israel, so Jesus represents and sums up the newly reconstituted Israel who will become faithful and loyal followers of him. That this is the case may be established by the implicit contrast here between Jacob as the one who who gave the inheritance of a well of water to Joseph versus Jesus who gave living water. That is eternal life as an inheritance to his people. The connection here is related to the inheritance that they give to their sons. In other words, Jacob distributed his inheritance among his sons, including his penchant for deception. So also God, but in in a new and better way, will distribute his inheritance among his sons in and through Jesus. So also John connects Jesus to Jacob in that Jesus calls 12 apostles, a fact that is assumed, I think, from the other Gospels. Though this is an obvious allusion to the 12 tribes of Israel, we don't often see the importance of it. For Jesus to call 12 apostles is to do nothing less than to call a new Israel, with himself as the father of this new Israel. Indeed, as the new Jacob, who is the father of the heads of the 12 tribes. All of this is to say, yes, Jacob. Yes, even more, Jesus. Like the author of Hebrews, Jesus is greater than the angels, greater than Joshua, greater than Moses, Yes, greater than Jacob. He is the goal to which they all looked. And he, is, he has a gift he wants to give to us, an inheritance, life eternal. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. She marvels that he is even speaking with her since as John says, Jews don't have dealings with the Samaritans. And even more so because he is a man, she is a woman and a woman of not so noble character. Why would a Jewish man take such a risk? John knew it was a risk, which is why he notes that his disciples didn't question him upon their return from getting food. The implication is that there is that were he, were he not who he is, he would have been questioned and likely rebuked for this shenanigan of meeting with a, with a, um, a loose woman at the well. To compound it all, the the Samaritans were the ones who claimed to be the true descendants of Jacob, and thus of Isaac, and thus of Abraham. And they had opposed the Jewish exiles return from Babylon. And the Samaritans were notoriously opposed to the Jerusalem temple. There was often violence and bloodshed between the Jews and the Samaritans, which is why this whole scenario is so amazing. Jesus risked He risked identification with them if he associated with them in any way. There was to be no mixing, symbolized in what we know of as kosher laws no meat and cheese, for example. But he does it because, once again, he is calling the world and reconciling the world to himself. Not just the Jews, though he wishes to do that as well. He is calling a new Israel, and she is one of them. In fact, if we remember the language of chapter 3, she is, so to speak, the bride of the Messiah. More on that next week or in the next section. The setting also hints at this, though, that she is some sort of bride. Robert Alter, in his book called The The Art of Biblical Narrative, notes that the biblical texts often employ certain conventions to develop certain motifs and to express certain truths. For example, it will be noticed at once for the reader of the Old Testament narratives that there is a recurring theme of the barren wife at odds with a fertile wife or concubine. The barren wife then, through the providence of God, gives birth to an important figure, a hero of sorts. Sarah and Hagar gives birth to, uh, Sarah ends up giving birth to Isaac after Ishmael is rejected. Hannah and Penina, Penina has many children, Hannah is barren. She will then, out of the providence, providence of God, will give, give birth to Samuel, the final priest and judge of Israel who will anoint David as, as the king, a recurrent motif. These types of scenes are called type scenes, and they are part of the way that, this, that a story is told in the biblical world. Another type scene is the one we see here, the betrothal, as Alter calls it. The betrothal type scene must take place with the future bridegroom or his surrogate. Think of Abraham sending his servant to get Isaac a wife, having journeyed to a foreign land. There he encounters a girl, a maiden, a virgin. Someone, either the man or the girl, then draws water from a well. Afterward, the girl or girls run to bring, the, the, bring home the news of the stranger's arrival. Finally, A betrothal is concluded between the stranger and the girl, in the majority of instances, only after he has been invited to a meal. Does it sound familiar? It should. Jesus travels to a foreign land, to Samaria, so to speak, outside the normal boundaries of Judea and Galilee. And don't forget that Jesus has already been called a bridegroom by John. Without a bride. So Jesus goes to the foreign land and he finds a woman drawing water at a well and he asks her for a drink. Now this is no ordinary maiden. That would have been strange enough. No, she was a woman who had had five husbands and who was living with the sixth whom she hadn't married. This is clearly an interruption of this type scene and things are diverting from script here and this makes it all the more important. Finally, the disciples have gone to get a meal for them Uh, all in the city, but strikingly, when they return, he doesn't really want the food that they bring back because he already has food to eat of which they are not aware. Then the woman goes into the city to announce the arrival of one who told me all the things that I have done. If we listen to the parallels between this type scene and others like it, we will hear some similarities and differences, a few of which I mentioned above. But the main takeaway today is this. Jesus, the bridegroom, has met a woman at Jacob's well, and he is revealing who he is to this woman. He is indeed greater than our father Jacob, as her words ironically echo about. He is the one who can give living water, that is flowing water. So living water, in, when you talk of living water in, in those days, what you're talking about is water that's moving. It's water that's living; it's alive. And so, uh, waters of rest are are waters that are sitting still; they're not moving at all. So, so there, there's this this double double meaning of these words that you'll hear uh, throughout this passage. And she says, well, "I want some living water. I don't. I want some flowing water, but you can't get it out of this well. You don't have anything to to uh, to get it out with. It's very deep, and and so he's like, "No, that's not the living water that I'm I'm referring to," but Um, He is the one who is going to give living water, flowing water, like the water found in Isaac's well that he dug in the valley in Genesis 26, 19. But it's going to be different than that. The type of water that makes the unclean clean, again, Leviticus 15, 13. I think there's some echoes there within the Levitical system where they'll, they'll, they'll take these birds and sacrifice them, and they'll do it over living water, over running water. And what it's going to do is make the the uh, By the blood, it's going to make uh, the, per- the worshiper clean. God himself is called the fountain of living waters in Jeremiah 2:13, 13, 17, 13. And now as Zechariah himself prophesied about that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. It will be the same in summer as it is in the winter. And Jesus, as the fountain of, fountain of living water, has given her the living waters, even though she is a Samaritan, and he will purify her from her uncleannesses and make her into a well of water that springs up into eternal life. And this is what Jesus's mission is. It is to seek and to save that which is lost, to heal those who know they have a disease, and to uncover uncleannesses that he might purify them, to betroth himself to a bride in order that he might wash her by his word, just like Ephesians chapter five. We'll return to more of that uh, probably after, after Christmas. It's, a, it's an exciting passage. If you didn't read it ahead of time, read, read through John chapter four, really uh, one through one through four, and uh, just listen to how that goes back and forth. Um, what I think I didn't make, make clear, um, I just realized that I was, as we were going through it, is that these type scenes, you can see them, if you read the, the patriarchal stories, the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you will notice how prominently this type scene of, of the well and drawing water, and um, all of the patriarchs essentially go to these wells to find their, their spouses. And that's where they meet, that's where they always meet them. And this is exactly what we have here. And so to for, for John, uh, the, the evangelist writing the book, he sees Jesus as reconstituting um, a new Israel. And so it is it's perfectly fitting for, for Jesus to find his wife at the well. And, and, and not only this, that um, we'll, see, we'll see when we return to this in, um, in the next section. When, when he says to this woman, uh, he says, go get your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. I said, yeah, you're right. He says, you've had five of them. One that you have now is not your husband and then that's number six there's this implicit um, expectation that he's going to be husband number seven right? and with the with the numerology of, of seven there as well um, it, it's really fascinating and uh, I think through it work through it think through it it's um, it's really really uh, edifying yeah.